Hello, everyone. This is Dr. Joel Rosen, your Adrenal Fatigue Recovery Ninja. And I want to thank everybody for showing up for this free live presentation called How to Beat uh, or How to Treat Adrenal Fatigue by Using Dietary Ketosis. We've got a lot of people that are registered tonight, so I'm really, really excited. I just want to welcome you all. I want to let you know that we're using Instant Teleseminar, and if you're not used to this software, at the end of this call, we're going to do a live Q&A. So what I'm going to do is you're going to be able to ask me questions. Right now, you're currently muted, and with this software, what you have to do, if you want to raise your hand and ask a question, you have to use star 2. That raises your hand, so later on, I'll remind you all about hitting star 2, and then you can ask me a question. So um, really excited to get started here. Uh, just hopefully that everyone is on the line talking about adrenal fatigue. Um, I had a little stressful event. I came to register online tonight and get this presentation started, and I saw that the event had already been uh, over. And I was like, how on earth could it be over? And I saw that the parameters were 8.30 a.m. instead of p.m. So I had to last minute get on the call with the tech people and get them to redirect the link back to a new event that I needed to create. And that in and of itself will cause you stress. And stress is all around us. And, and the, the definition of environment is anything but self. And so anything but my body that inputs or impacts my body is a, an environmental stressor. And that's what that was. And, and I can't do anything about it except try to um, do the best I can. And, and I think as you start to control your your adrenals, that's what you'll do is you'll try to just go with the flow. So so excited to get going here. Uh, I want to talk to you about uh, adrenal fatigue and going into a dietary ketotic state. It is a very controversial subject. Certainly it's not for everyone, but really what I want you to do is I want you to um, silence all your cell phones if you can and shut down your browser windows if there's more than one. That's another reason you're, you're stressed out all the time is we have so much stimuli coming in at one time. You really just need to simplify things. And so um, first things first, I have to do a little housekeeping. I have a little bit of a legal disclaimer. The information, including but not limited to the text, the graphics, the images, and other materials contained in this presentation is for information purposes only. The purpose of this conference is to provide an understanding and knowledge of various health topics. It is not intended to be a substitute for your professional medical for a professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified healthcare providers with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition or treatment and before undertaking a new health care regime. And never disregard professional medical advice or delay in seeking it because of something you have encountered in this presentation. So I'm glad to get that out of the way and I'm glad to get started here and how to treat adrenal fatigue by using dietary ketosis. Once again, my name is Dr. Joel Rosen, and I call myself the Adrenal Fatigue Recovery Ninja because my job is to try to um, help you recover as natural uh, as as possible using remedies that are are basically life changes and our nutritional approaches. 
So let's go over what we're going to cover first. I got a lot of slides to go through, and I want to make sure that we give each one proper attention. But at the same time, I don't want you to be brain dead at the end of it. So, so we're going to try to move along accordingly and, and give you as much information as succinctly as possible. So what exactly is a ketogenic diet? We're going to cover that. We're also going to cover what it means to be ketoadaptive and what it does not mean, because most doctors get this wrong, which is very maddening, and, and, and can also um, do harm. You know, there's the Hippocratic Oath of doing no harm, and sometimes doctors in their attempt to help you are doing harm, and that's a shame. Um, and that will impact your ability to recover with your adrenal problems, especially when they don't even say that it's a, a real problem. Um, we're also going to understand why the mitochondria uh, is unstable and, and how that will be impacted from a blood sugar problem. It's often the root cause of, of, of mitochondrial dysfunction, as is food sensitivities, autoimmunities, and ultimately adrenal fatigue. I'd even say that it's safe to say that anyone who's got an adrenal problem has a mitochondrial problem and vice versa. Anyone who's got a mitochondrial problem has an adrenal problem. But because the mitochondria trumps the adrenals in that that's where the energy production of the cell takes place, then really we want to look at fundamentally the, uh, the underlying mitochondrial dysfunction. So what we're going to cover as well is the common dietary pitfalls or roadblocks that you must identify in your attempt to become ketoadaptive in order to solve your adrenal fatigue problem. And then I'm going to leave you with six ketogenic supplements that you should be using as part of your adrenal fatigue recovery. It will help you get into ketosis a lot better as well. So, so let's have some fun. I'm going to be sharing a lot of really important information with you guys today um, so that you can help uh, understand why you're not able to overcome your adrenal fatigue issues, uh, why you're stressed out all the time, suffering with chronic pain and not being able to bounce back. That's one of the common things I hear people say is they just can't bounce back the way they used to be able to. The extreme exhaustion. So it's not just a little bit of exhaustion. It's extreme exhaustion. And think about that mitochondria. It's got to produce energy. So from a microscopic level, if you're not producing energy in the cell, then from a macroscopic level, you're not producing energy in your body to be able to do your day-to-day -day activities. And that entails crashing in the middle of the day. That's a hallmark symptom or sign of someone who has an adrenal problem that's not able to balance their blood sugar. They have that mid-afternoon crash. Also, just your circadian clocks are broken. You're tired and you're wired. You know, it's the end of the day and you should be tired, but that's when you get a, maybe a little bit of a oomph, a little bit of increase in your energy levels. And then in the morning when the alarm goes off, you're just exhausted. Uh, going to the doctor and having your blood test be normal, that's really frustrating. And on top of that, the doctor says that there's no such thing as adrenal fatigue. Uh, as well, uh, doctors not believing that it's real and that what you're dealing with is something that's in your head, like you want to be suffering with this problem. How do I know all this? I know because I've suffered myself, So, um, and we'll get into that a little bit as well. So, so I really want you to focus, um, again, like I said, try to turn off your phones, close other internet browser windows, and lock the door, do whatever you got to do to stay focused with me. And of course, I'll send this replay for you guys so that you can listen to it again.
So why should you listen to me? Um, that's a good question. I'll tell you a little bit about my story. Um, I am from a traditional medical family. My sister is a family practice doctor, and uh, my mother is a public health nurse. And my uncle is a dermatologist, and my first cousin is a trauma surgeon. So I had originally injured my back, and, and that set the downhill spiral of me developing my adrenal fatigue issue on top of my $150,000 worth of student loans, on top of um, having uh, a wife with twins that was on bed rest for for almost um, 16 weeks in the hospital, whether or not knowing if these twins were even going to pull through. Uh, moving to a new state, let alone a new country, and just being exhausted. And so one of the big issues that I had was a blood sugar issue as well. So I would do one of those things where I wouldn't eat. I'd take a long time between meals. I'd maybe miss a breakfast or have a breakfast, and then the next time I eat would be at 3 or 4 in the afternoon because I didn't want the calories and just wanted to try to be as lean as possible. And uh, and I was shaky, lightheaded, and jittery. And when I grew up as a child, I would have a lot of sweets. I remember having soccer practices and and having the big gulp in 7-Eleven and and in Canada having the pop shop and all the different flavors. And and my blood sugar was really unstable. And that's why I think this diet or this ketogenic way of living is really really beneficial for patients that have always had glucose dysregulation issues because really glucose is is the cause of a lot of inflammation and if you are not able to stabilize your blood sugar then all mitochondrial dysfunction um, precedes uh, glucose problems so that's a that's a real aha moment so for me I had all the signs and symptoms and all the, the say the perfect storm if you will of an injury of financial stress of blood sugar instability of deadlines and 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 in-laws and family members and relocations and infections. So I had all of the hallmark um, contributors to making my adrenal glands go into fatigue mode, if you will. And so I have also learned how to become di- um, uh, using a dietary ketotic type of protocol for my very self as well. So, um, so that's why you should listen to me. Um, I'd like to also just now transition into the part of the webinar where we can get some really good take-home points and be really, really helpful for you as well. So so what exactly is a ketogenic diet and what does it mean to be keto-adaptive? And so um, keto basically is ketone bodies. Ketone bodies are when your body utilizes um, stored fat or the fat that you've used as a fuel source um, to fund your energy supplies. And so basically, I've said it in a video before, you have two gas tanks that will fuel your, your engine. The first one is your your, glyc- your glucose gas tank, and that's the one that typically we, we tap into. And then we have the uh, dietary fat uh, um, energy source, which we which we can dial into if we make sure that we become keto adaptive, meaning we don't have enough glucose in in large amounts supplied to fund the energy expenditures. We have very little glucose, and our body has adapted to that response by utilizing the the ketone bodies that are made from dietary fats or stored fats as your fuel source. So that's pretty pretty easy definition of what it 
means to be keto adaptive. Um, what it is, what it isn't, is is we're going to talk about in a couple slides because a lot of doctors get that wrong, and that really impacts your ability to um, recover and see if this diet is even working for you. So, so let's talk about what um, the typical food proportions are in the Western health um, healthy type of diet plan. Typically, and it's not always the case, but typically you see about 50% carbohydrates, 30% fats, and 20% protein. Now, you may see some variations of that where carbohydrates may be a little bit lower and proteins may be a little bit higher. But in general, fat is always seen to be the boogeyman. And, and what I mean by that is I, I was at the grocery store the other day and, and this gentleman was not too 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 skinny. He was he was pretty big. And he was in the in the deli section and he was asking for the cheese that had the least amount of fat. And I, I felt like telling him or asking him why why he was concerned about that. And I was in a sincere way, not in a way where I was insulting to him, but more just in an inquisitive way, like why why are you concerned about the fat? And I think we're just conditioned to think that the more fat that we eat, the less healthy that it is. And it's really not true. And so that's that's a lot of marketing and a lot of propaganda in in the um the the food pyramid, if you will, and so, uh, but that's the typical breakdown that we see with these types of diets, and we see with the with a keto adaptive diet, it goes a lot lower with carbohydrates, and it's suggested it should be somewhere in the fifty five percent carbohydrates, eighty uh, percent fats, and fifteen percent proteins, and and that's a huge paradigm shift because. Like I just mentioned, we're taught to think that eating fats, saturated fats, animal fats, I'm not talking about deep fried foods and I'm not talking about really oily and greasy prepared foods. We're just talking about healthy dietary fats like healthy marbled meats, bacon and ham and and pork and 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 things like that or we're talking about uh, avocados and seeds and nuts and nut butters and eggs and dairy products with whole 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 milk and the whole the whole fat not the skin fat. So so that's that's basically the difference between going uh ketogenic and and then or what they call keto adaptive diet means you've been doing it for long enough times now where your body is now solely using its ketone bodies as its energy source. So most doctors get this wrong, which if, you know, I've mentioned in a video that if you went to your doctor and you asked them, okay, hey, I'm thinking about going uh, into dietary ketosis, they'll look at you more often than not and say, oh, that's really, really dangerous. You shouldn't do that. That's really bad for your kidneys or you can go into a diabetic coma or you're just, it's it's just so bad for you. And they're right if you're in, in metabolic acidosis or we call it ketoacidosis, which can be really lethal. But dietary ketosis is something completely different. So I have a couple of things that I've written down here where dietary ketosis, if you're measuring the ketone bodies, and we'll talk about how you can do that, but dietary ketosis starts at about 0.45 millimoles per liter in, in the blood versus ketoacidosis is somewhere in the 16 millimoles to 20 millimoles. So it's suggested in dietary ketosis, you should be somewhere between potentially 0.4 to 5.0 millimoles. 
and it, with ketoacidosis, you're at 16 to 20 or even above. So if you're at 0.4 to 5 for a dietary ketotic state and you're at 16 millimoles to 20 or above, it could be somewhere in the four, six, seven times higher when you're in dietary ketosis. So that's one major difference. And those ketone bodies are big and that's why they put so much stress on the kidneys. And that's why a patient can go into a diabetic coma, and that's the next point, in that when you're in ketoacidosis, these patients have a lot of glucose circulating in the body, and typically over 160 milligrams per deciliter, whereas someone who's in dietary ketosis, they haven't been eating any carbs. So their carb intake or their, their fasting glucose levels could be somewhere in the 72 milligrams per deciliter. So it's a huge difference. Not only are the keto bodies being a lot less when you have someone who's in dietary ketosis, somewhere in the four to seven times less, you also have um, a really low fasting glucose level. Dietary ketosis as well is insulin levels are below the reference ranges and very and typically well below the reference ranges when you're in dietary ketosis, whereas in ketoacidosis, the insulin levels are really, really high. So think about what happens with, with uh, ketoacidosis. You have someone who's probably type 2 diabetes, someone whose glucose levels are really, really high, someone whose insulin levels are really, really high, they're insulin resistant, their ketone bodies are really, really high, and so they're putting a lot of pressure on the kidneys, they're not able to break down these, these substrates and these energy sources, they're not able to get glucose out of the blood sugar, the cells are not taking the any energy in, whether ketone bodies or glucose, and that person is in, in a big trauma state for, for a coma or even death. And that's nowhere near what dietary ketosis is. Dietary ketosis, you have low ketone bodies, somewhere in the 0.4 to or 8.8 .8 to 5 millimoles. You have low glucose and low insulin. So completely different. If a doctor ever tells you that dietary ketosis is unsafe, then tell them that they need to brush up on their biochemistry. All right, so let's talk about ketones and energy system. Um, I do have a background in exercise physiology from previous life, so um, I remember studying at McMaster University the ketone system and the and the ergonomic system and, and how we do anaerobic activity and aerobic activity. So I wanted to keep this as, as easy as possible. So I, I have it what's called Physiology 101. Is it, is it as easy as just saying energy in equals energy out? And I think what's happening nowadays is we're proving that to not be true. And it's not just a simple eat this much food and you burn this much calories and that's it, that's all. There's so many variables. There's the gut microbiome. And there's also the new research that tells us about genetics and polymorphisms, which I'll be talking more and more about, um, but also the fact that cells are adaptive. And what does that mean? It means that no matter how much food or calories that you take in on a day-to-day -day basis, there's going to be fluctuation. So some days you'll have nothing or some days you can have excess. So those are the big fluctuations. But at the end of the day, your cells will still need to do and produce what they need to do based on the fluctuations. So they have an ability to adapt to their environment. If you give them a lot of calories, they adapt. If you give them no calories, they adapt. So they're able to adapt no matter what the environment that they're given.
Our cells are adaptive in nature. They, um, they need to adapt to a fasting state when we're sleeping, and, and, and to varying degrees, they need to adapt to that during the day. And food molecules are therefore sp stored in special reserves for future use. And we'll get into a little bit about what time of day it's, it's better to eat certain foods. It's always been recommended that proteins are better in the earlier part of the day towards the middle of the afternoon. And then, and then glucose is usually used um, a little bit more efficiently at the middle of the afternoon to the end of the day. And how many people get that wrong? It's amazing that they try to have their carbs earlier in the day and then they say that they don't try to eat their carbs later at night. And really from a circadian rhythm point of view, um, our adaptive cells show that we, we process protein um, and store them for later use when we use them in the morning and then we're more insulin resistant in the morning and then we're more insulin sensitive at night. So that's an aha moment for you that if you're trying to do a modified keto adaptive diet, meaning you're not 100% sticking to an 85% dietary fat intake, um, one of the tricks that you can do is you can try to eat more of your carbohydrates later in the afternoon, um, even if you are trying to moderate them, whereas um, you're eating less of them in the morning because you're more insulin uh, resistant in the morning. And what do we typically do? I mean, you see buns and cereals and cakes and breads and desserts. You see desserts for breakfast, oats and, and so forth. And oats could be healthy, but, you you know, if we're going to get into a keto, ketogenic state and we're going to try to get somewhere in the 5% of our total calories from, from, from glucose or from carbs, it's not going to take very much oats to put you over the edge as well. So anyways, um, as well, uh, the adaptive state is crucial for our survival, our regulatory mechanisms involved in controlling energy and its utilization, and it's tightly regulated so that the demands of our cells can be met uh, simultaneously. So the big take-home message of this is it's just not simply foods in equal foods out. Um, we are always adapting to our, our environment, whether we have a lot of food intake or a little bit of food intake, our cells still need to produce energy. They still need to detoxify. They still need to um, put out inflammation. They still need to regenerate DNA. They still need to have mitochondrial, uh, a mitochondrial function. They still need to produce reactive oxidative species. They still need to make neurotransmitters and um, also um, they need to make B12 and neurons and so forth. So if they're not getting enough fuel at all times throughout the day, they have these adaptive mechanisms and storage sites where they can they can they can accommodate to their their environmental um, influences. So anyways, the 21st century adaptation to sugar, question mark. As recently as the 1990s, most physicians and traditional nutrition scientists believe that carbohydrates must constitute a major component of one's daily energy intake for optimal physical performance to be maintained. So it's always been said that these athletes should carb load. If you're doing a marathon, you should carb load. And that was one of the things that I remember in exercise physiology is how to, how to put enough fuel in your in your glycogen stores so that you can f 
fuel your activity. And now we're finding that with the research that once you're actually keto adaptive, when you've been doing it for a long enough time where you're efficient at burning ketone bodies, that it's not necessarily true. You don't have to carb load or you don't have to worry about being at such a high intensity level requiring the uh, anaerobic use of glycolysis. That doesn't happen anymore. What we find is that when we are keto adaptive, when we've been keeping our carb levels low for long periods of time, when I say long periods of time, it could take someone as, as, as long as two months or six months. It could take a while. But when you're finally keto adaptive, then you can fuel your energy levels, especially your intense energy levels, um, with dietary fats, which is really, really cool. So a lot of that research has been proven to be largely incorrect. Um, under normal human circumstances, we require only minimal amounts of glucose. And most of the ones that we do require can be supplied by the liver and its storage site when needed. So that's an argument to, to go against anyone that says that you definitely have to have a certain amount of glucose to to fuel your energy sources and we're finding that that's just not true however if the diet is high in glucose and refined carbohydrates genes will eventually upregulate their enzyme systems so basically what that means is they work harder faster um, to be able to keep up with um, the inflammation or the the increase in glycogen stores and what happens is the pathways the receptors all involved in burning sugar speed up, but it also speeds up our fat storage. And it also downregulates all those enzymes and pathways and receptors for burning fat for energy. So that's why you get patients or people that you see that are working really hard in the gym, they're going really low-fat diets, they're exercising hard, they're eating moderate amount of carbs, a lot of protein, and they just can't lose that stubborn body fat, especially around the, the midsection and the um, the love handles or the muffin top, if, if you will. It's because the these regulatory mechanisms where our body will speed up these enzyme systems and pathways for storing fat and, and burning sugar. And we are uh, we're just not paying attention to this. So is fat our original ancestral fuel? Oxidation of one gram of fat releases uh, about twice as much energy as the oxidation of one gram of glycogen. So that's a big a big point right there. And what that basically means is our fat is a lot more efficient at energy production. You probably know by now that one gram of of um one gram of carbohydrates is four calories, whereas one gram of fat is nine calories. So for each pound or, or pound for pound, fat gives us a lot more energy. And so if we're going ketotic or we're trying to keep our our glucose levels low and fuel our energy sources with 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 um, ketone bodies, we're going to have a lot more energy. If our main fuel reserves are were just glycogen instead of fat, um, our weight would have to be about um, four stone. Um, I want to thank um, a doctor who has helped us me put this presentation together, and um, he's been really instrumental as well. And I'll, I'll I'll say his name at the end of the presentation. But we would be four stone, so that's European for about forty extra pounds, or in the British units. 
An average adult uh, stores enough glycogen for only about a day of normal activity, but enough fat loss for nearly a month. So think about that. An average adult stores enough glycogen for only about a day of normal activity, but we have enough fat storage for a month. So our fat just is able to fuel us a lot further, a lot longer. And once we become keto adaptive, we can tap into those fat stores. So it really begs uh, the the answer of um, fat burns fat and if you are becoming keto adaptive and you're able to utilize fat more efficiently then you are going to burn the ones that you take in and also the ones that are stored and so even a stick thin triathlete carries enough fat to fuel five time iron ironmans in a row it has been suggested that changing a diet to a low refined carbohydrates and higher fat paleo diet can help shift the metabolism into burning fats mostly as fuel. So a couple really good points to be able to try to become keto adaptive. Our energy use in a fed state, virtually 100% is glucose. Um, in a fasting starvation state, 35% is glucose, 65% is ketones. And we have different types of ketones. We have 15% acetoacetate, um, and that is what we typically see in the uh, urine. And then we see 50% of beta-hydroxybutyrate, which is typically in the blood. So ketogenesis is really a natural um, state of fasting. And it's our body catabolizing its fuel sources like stored fat to be able to to get through the long, cold winters. And this is the way we were engineered. So measuring ketones, how do we do it? Um, ketones are water-soluble solu uh, molecules from fatty acid oxidation. So when we burn fat, fatty acids, that's what oxidation means. Um, they're basically, that's what the ketones are. Um, fats are broken down into three main t ketones. Um, Beta-hydroxybutyrate, it's measured in the blood, and that's specific levels at that time, and that's measured with a glucose meter. So um, if you've seen the glucometers with the test strips, they now have glucometers glucometers with test strips for, for measuring beta-hydroxybutyrate. That's going to be the most efficient way of doing it, or the most uh, specific and most detailed way of doing it, except it's a bit of a pain in the butt. You have to prick your finger a couple times a day at certain certain intervals, like first thing in the morning or after a meal or at the end of the day. And those test strips aren't cheap. I think they're somewhere in the 3 to $4 ranges. So it's a bit of an inconvenience, but it's the most efficient way or the most, um, not, I won't necessarily say efficient, but it's the most accurate way of, of figuring it out. The cheapest, uh, easiest way is the acetoacetate, which I mentioned earlier, which is measured in the urine. And that is the interim spillage use um, the ketone strip. So it's basically a short-term measurement. So when we're trying to become keto adaptive and it's just our first couple days to our first couple weeks, that's a great way to go because it's quick, it's cheap, it's inexpensive. You can still get a good reading and find out if you're becoming keto adaptive. Um, but what happens eventually is you will start to do switch over into beta-hydroxybutyrate, which is specific levels at that time. So meaning once you have become keto adaptive, 
maladaptive and you try to use a test strip for urine and you're no longer seeing the the, um, the spillage over because we're not spilling over anymore, you're going to wrongly assume that you're no longer in ketosis. Or if you know this information, you can say, okay, now that I no longer see the, the, the ketone strips be positive, then I can measure that as a way of knowing by, by a negative result that I'm actually in ketosis. However, the problem with that is you can't really quantify it. You don't really know how much it is. So I've had a couple buddies that I've tried to get to go ketone, uh, get into ketosis, and I told them to start with the, with the urinary strips. And then after a while, if the urinary strips stop being, um, uh, uh, showing that you're in ketosis, then it's it's good to assume that you are actually in ketosis. Um, and if they start to show that you're still showing some ketone bodies, then it's actually a, a positive test for the wrong reason, which means that you're actually still spilling over some ketones. You're not fully keto adaptive, and you're you're giving yourself a high five saying, "Yeah, I'm, I have ketone bodies." Um, you shouldn't have them anymore. You should, be, especially if it's longer than two months. So. So really, at that point, you really want to try to switch over into potentially doing the, the test strips, measuring the beta-hydroxybutyrate or, or the acetone. And I have that right now. It's a really cool machine. It's called the Ketonix, K-E-T-O-N-I-X. Um, you can go ketonix.com. It measures the uh, acetone levels in your breath, and, and that really correlates very, very well with um, with your ketone body. So those are the three different ways you can measure. And another way you can measure is just knowing that you are you have more energy, you're dropping pounds, um, you're not as hungry, you're not craving sugars, you can miss a meal. I mean, you, you know when you're in ketosis. I'll tell you a little bit about myself. When I started getting into ketosis, I was really getting that keto flu where you get headaches and um, cramping, crampings in the muscles because what was happening was because the ketone bodies um, – uh, or because carbohydrates have so much water in them, you're losing a lot of the water depletion when you have less carbohydrates in your diet. You're spilling out your sodium and you're spilling out your minerals and magnesium, and then you get that ketone flu. So that's one of the one of the pitfalls or the the dangers that I'm going to talk a little bit a, a little bit later. So this is a really cool slide, and I'm hoping you can see these slides. Ketones for energy. So um, basically, glucose has to go through 11 steps in order to go through the citric acid cycle and the electron transport chain, which all take place in the mitochondria, in order to make ATP. However, ketone bodies only have to go through three steps to be able to go into the citric acid cycle and, and go into the electron transport chain and to make ATP. So they're a lot more efficient and, and they can supply up to 60% of your total ATP. So a lot more efficient at, at doing ketosis versus glycolysis. The benefits of keto adaptive diets and ketogenic diets um, improve glucose metabolism. I talked about myself early, earlier where my blood sugar has always been unstable. Um, most of the patients that I try to go keto with are patients that just don't understand why they've been exercising so well, they've been eating what they think has been very well, and yet their A1C is high. I've put patients on six-week cleanses. We've identified food reactivities. We remove them or they said they removed them, and then their A1C levels don't change very well. It's because they are not burning ketones, and they are burning glucose, and they are 
creating continuation of inflammation. So one of the major influences or the major benefits of becoming keto adaptive is you do have a lot better glucose metabolism. And so those are the patients or the people that I typically want to try to get to become keto adaptive. And they're the patients that are typically adrenal fatigued because being um, glucose dysregulated is one of the major um, drainers of your adrenal glands. So it also uh, generates asymptomatic hypoglycemia. So what do I mean by that? Well, if you look at the blood result, blood ranges, and you'll see the ranges for the lab are anywhere between 65 to 110. That's the lab ranges. And then you have the functional ranges are anywhere between 85 to 99. And so when someone is symptomatic hypoglycemic, they get shaky, lightheaded, jittery, because what happens is their blood sugar levels fall too low, and their adrenal glands and their cortisol levels get released in order to liberate some sugar into the bloodstream. And then they get that that sort of that sympathetic response and they get shaky and jittery and lightheaded. Um, however, when you are keto adaptive and you are using ketones as your fuel source, what happens is your blood sugar continues to fall because you're not using blood sugar as your fuel source and you're not ingesting blood sugar or glucose. And however, you're not symptomatic. You don't have the shakiness, the lightheadedness, the the recruitment of cortisol and the and the sympathetic response. You're basically you're you're good. Um, however, you do want to make sure that you're not doing a prolonged intermittent fast and we'll add a couple questions in on on, um, the adrenal fatigue facebook page about um, intermittent fasting and and that's really where that comes in is is that as you become keto adaptive and as the ketone bodies generate a lot more fuel per gram of 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 weight you're going to get more bang for your buck you're not going to be able to or you're not going to need to ingest as uh, as much carbs as you as you need to before and so your blood sugar continues to fall and you're still not hungry because you're utilizing your own fuel sources so you can go a meal and miss a meal and then miss another meal you can go anywhere between 6 12 18 24 hours of fasting and you're still utilizing your ketone bodies and that's a bit of an advanced strategy um that some people can implement once they've become keto adaptive and um and it it's a fantastic thing to be able to do it's more effective at um at uh sorry, it's more effective than low calories for protocols with type 2 diabetes. So that's kind of along the same lines that we're just talking about. And it's also more effective at burning uh, the, the the body fat around the midsection. And I hate to admit, but that's been one of my, my major, my own major responses is the fact that I used to have um, just I couldn't get rid of the extra little love handles around the side no matter how much I tried to exercise. And, and I really restricted my intake of dietary fat. And once I started really dropping my carb intake and eating a lot more dietary fat that that really just melted right off which is which is awesome right who doesn't want that all right so benefits of the keto adaptive diet it's reduction in inflammation um, and risk of chronic degenerative disease definitely improves that mitochondrial efficiency 
increases in your ergogenic and decrease in your thermogenic, so you're just able to produce more energy at less um, burn-off or less, you don't require to heat up the engines quite as much. So basically that just means you're more efficient at energy. Um, increased mitochondrial concentration. So mitochondria actually thrive in this type of environment. And think about why is because there's less inflammation. And when there's inflammation, that by definition is reactive oxidative species, which basically cull off the healthy mi mitochondria. So when we don't have that, mitochondria is going to flourish and we're going to have more energy. Mitochondria runs better on fats and at lower intensity energy levels. So when we combine that with intermittent fasting, um, we see an increase in um, cell division and and decrease and also of of bad cell replication, which is basically healthier living. So very very helpful for the mitochondria. And there's a lot of things that we want to try to do because, as I mentioned at the very beginning of this lecture. All adrenal fatigue patients have some form of mitochondrial dysfunction, and that's why keto-adaptive diets are really, really great for mitochondrial dysfunction. Improved benefits are cardiovascular function, and, and how ironic is that is we've been told that saturated fats and, and cholesterol ingestion is bad for our heart. And I would agree. I would say it is bad for your heart, and it's bad for um cholesterol de deposition in the arteries and inflammation if your glucose levels are high because there's never going to be a deposition or a cholesterol buildup in your in your vessels if you're not inflamed if you don't have a lot of glucose dysregulation if you don't have a lot of insulin dysregulation if you do you can expect that so really you're improving your ability to utilize um uh, ketone bodies as a fuel source so you're not storing them so of course you're going to have less fat so it's just amazing that that it seems so common sense yet it's not so common um, it also improves epigenetic control so the expression of the environment on our human genome it helps our microbiome and gut function it reduces small intestinal bacterial overgrowth and other gut infections it reduces pain in, in the bowel and spasms and the reduction of IBS symptoms. So really, really great things to be associated with um, the benefits of becoming keto-adaptive. So so who's it for? Um, I've already talked about people that are have high circulating glucose, so most diabetics would be great for most patients that have inflammation in their body, which we all have to a certain extent, long-term chronic degenerative diseases, type 2 diabetes, obesity, cardiovascular diseases, cancer, neurodegenerative diseases. It, it optimizes energy output, your mental focus, um, genetic predisposition for diseases, people that have gut diseases, and especially you guys that have adrenal fatigue disorders. It's a really good way to go. So how do we do it? Um, basically, you have to assess the individual. Like I mentioned in a lot of the Facebook posts, you just can't go about it randomly and say, okay, I'm going to do it and it's for me. You have to make sure that you are prepared um, physically, psychologically, mentally for it. Um, many systems are at play when we're assessing your overall body health, digestive health, gallbladder health, liver health. Those are some, some very, very important um, systems in the body that if they're not up to snuff, then it could be quite taxing to you. Um, there's also essential um, 
essential things that you need to address as well before you come keto adaptive or um, get into um, uh, keto uh, dietary protocols. You just basically get a complete picture of the individual, and that's why any patient that I put on a keto adaptive diet, we're doing a 20-page history on them. We're doing a family history. We're we're looking at their epigenetics. We're doing a genetic test on them. We're looking at their gut health. We're evaluating their functional ranges. We're looking at liver markers, and it's just not like I'm closing my eyes and and just saying, okay, here you go, let's try it. We're making sure that it's fully measurable in terms of what you're going in with, implement it. What you're coming out with, looking at the subjective improvements and absolutely looking at the objective improvements as well. So that's really, really cool. Um, endogenous ketogenesis. So basically, your body is producing ketogenesis on its own. Um, the main, it's the main source of ketone bodies is, is dietary fats. You basically have to restrict your carbs to less than 5 to 15% of your total calorie intake. And you have to adjust your protein to somewhere in the 15 to 25%. And that's where a lot of mistakes are made, where I have patients that tell me, you know what, I, I'm doing it and it's not working. I'm not losing the weight. And what happens is they start to eat way too much protein. And that's just a natural consequence. You're still hungry. You're not eating that sort of feel-good carb food that gives you some good neurotransmitter production and, and just makes you feel good. You're not eating any of that. So what are you going to do? You're going to eat more protein, eat more protein, and then all of a sudden that protein exceeds your threshold and you become um, a, no longer a, a ketone burner and you become a glucose burner. So that's a big aha moment that you need to really try to figure out if that's going on with you. And how do you do that? Well, we talked about knowing for sure. Measuring is knowing. So you can't just say, oh, I think I'm there. you got to do those ketone strips. you got to do the glucometer with the beta-hydroxybutyrate. Or you got to do the, the ketonics and measure your breath. And you got to do that for at least two months, two to six months, to see if it's working for you, provided you've done a real good workup, you've assessed your lymphatics, you've assessed your gallbladder, if you don't have a gallbladder, you've put a, a strategy in place so that you can start to um, utilize some nutrients that's going to help you emulsify the fats and the bile and, and all that good stuff. Um, you're making sure you're getting your minerals. You're making sure that you're helping your mitochondrial function. There's, there's actually a science to it, and you can't just go about it willy-nilly. And finally, your fats need to be somewhere in the 70 to 80%. Another problem I see, though, is that potentially if you're reacting to some of these fats that are otherwise healthy if your immune system is not responding, so what I mean by that is if you have intestinal permeability, if your gut is breaking down and you are reacting to egg or dairy every time you eat it, even though they're really great ketogenic dietary foods, you're creating inflammation in your body and you're taking one step forward and two steps back. So one of the very, very common tests that we'll do when we're getting someone to become keto adaptive is we'll do a, a cross-reactive test to test gluten, obviously gluten, but well, more important than gluten is eggs, dairy, soy, corn, rice, potato, all all of those things to figure out which foods that you may eat when you're becoming dietary ketotic, um, what you're reacting to. So that's really, really important as well. 
So let's talk about some of the carbohydrates that you should be eating because that's another problem is, is that a lot of the times when we become um, a keto-adaptive um, dietary protocol user, um, what happens is we don't eat any more carbs, and we need carbs. Carbs has the... Um, the methylfolate and the and the good green leafy vegetables. So sources of carbs that have good high leafy green vegetables. And like I mentioned, you want to make sure that they are um, low levels during the day and higher levels in the evening. And that's mainly because our circadian rhythms allow us to be more insulin sensitive in the afternoon and evening when our liver is starting to utilize a little bit more of its energy sources, especially in the evening times. It, wanna, it wants to make sure that it has that, that source of carbohydrates to fuel that production. There's no such thing as net carbs versus total carbs. You may have heard that, well, if I'm eating a lot of fiber, um, then then I can have the fruit and, and my carbs. You know, I minus the, the fiber from my total carbs, so that's my net carbs. At the end of the day, it's the total carbs. So don't don't play that game. The largest consumption, mainly in the evening, like I mentioned, for recovery and during anaerobic exercises that take longer than 40 minutes. So that's when you can eat a little more carbohydrates. Also know that you should have high levels of salt because as you decrease your carbohydrates, you'll have that keto flu like I experienced. And so good, healthy pink salt is good. Um, bouillon cubes, organic, are, are really, really good. That will get your sodium levels up again as well. Um, as well, general ketosis will not be affected if moderate carbs are consumed in the evening. So that's a little tidbit of information that you can say, hey, I'm, I'm concerned because I'm having a little more carbs or I'm missing my carbs. And I think if I do eat them, it's taking me out of ketosis. Well, try to have them a little bit more in the evening time or if you've done exercise for longer than 40 minutes. Just make sure you get your sodium intake levels in up. Carbohydrates, two me me uh, methods of measuring ketones in the blood. Um, are, you can start with trying to get 60 to 70 grams per day and reduce it until your ketones rise above 0.6 millimoles. Um, you would measure that with a glucometer. Or you can do it the other way where you start with 20 grams a day and then increase it until your ketones rise above 0.6. So there's two different ways. Let's, let's state that again, or state that again, sorry, is you start with 60 to 70 grams per day and then you reduce it until your ketones rise above 0.6. Or you start with 20 grams a day, and then you increase it until your ketones rise above 0.6. I usually try to get my patients, because it's a big paradigm shift to say, hey, you're eating somewhere between 150 to 200 grams of carbs per day, and we're going to drop you down to 20. It's just too hard. Let's just say, hey, let's drop it in half at 75, see how you do. Um, if you start to feel um, lethargic or you may be dehydrated, if you are having gastrointestinal distress, that could be because you are not emulsifying your fats. Maybe we can use some bile acids or bile salts or some digestive enzymes. Um, but let's let's at least measure and see where you're at so that we can get some good data and not just say, hey, Dr. Rosen, this didn't work for me. I tried it. I got dizzy. I got shaky. I got lightheaded. I got nausea. I got stomach upset it just doesn't work okay maybe you didn't get assessed properly maybe someone didn't look at your your vitals and your and your parameters and your liver and your and your and your, and your blood work before you got into it or maybe you're really not into it i mean there's so many variables and i hate to just kind of make the wrong conclusion that this is not working for you based on the the variables that you didn't consider 
Alcohol definitely is a potent inhibitor of ketosis, so when consumed, uh, it basically ends ketosis temporarily, um, but immediately it, it ends the um, beta-hydroxybutyrate levels. Um, it negatively affects heart rate variability. Um, heart rate variability, put an asterisk beside that because that is some cool stuff that I'm going to start to implement a lot more with my patients. And what that means is um, heart rate variability will measure your heart rate changes to the external environment. And so it's a good indicator of how well your sympathetic system is being stimulated. And at the end of the day, that's the trump card. You know, I have a patient that I'm working with right now, and we're putting on our gut cleanse, and she's got severe autoimmunities. We did a wheat zoomer test and found that her permeability in her gut was astronomical. And we are putting her on a cleanse. We're removing the foods that she's reacting to. I haven't gotten her on a ketogenic diet yet, but she's starting to do better. But every time she comes in it's another stressor it's her identity her identity was lost or was stolen or the boss or the move and it's of course she's, we all have stressful lives but just like me getting on this call before we started you know I almost didn't I, I have a lot of guests on here tonight and I screwed up by putting AM instead of PM and I could have definitely started to get a little bit of an anxiety attack but just kind of have to realize that this 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 is this happened and and I need to deal with it but getting back to the heart rate variability that will detect any changes and when we start seeing okay hey your heart rate variability is is changing and it's the opposite of what you think actually so the more stabilized your heart rate is the less variable it is the more the sympathetic input and the more variable it is um then the less the para, the less the sympathetic and the more the parasympathetic. So it's opposite to what you would think. You would think the more normalized it is, the more the less variable it is, the more parasympathetic. But it's not that way. What happens is when you're stressed, you have a lot more mechanisms like neurotransmitters and hormone productions that have to stabilize that blood pressure and, and heart rate around a certain variable, whereas when you're calm and you're relaxed, you're going to have a lot more variability. So when you monitor someone's heart rate variability, especially when they get into ketosis, you can start to see if they're becoming more parasympathetic. And at the end of the day, becoming more parasympathetic, whether it's from ketones, whether it's from relaxing, from breathing, from figuring out what your environmental stressors are, that's the long-term solution to your adrenal problems. And that's, that's a whole seminar right there, which we'll get into. Um, if consumed regularly and within the last hours before retiring, it will raise your blood glucose until noon the following day. So unfortunately, alcohol is out. Obviously, we're not going to be perfect 100% of the time. Just realize, is it worth it? Um, it's, an, it's an event. It's an occasion. we got to live our lives. But if you're doing it too much, then you're not going to get into dietary ketosis. Kind of move along here. Um, protein sources, mish, uh, mish, meat, fish, eggs, vegan and whey powder, um, collagen, high-protein vegetables. Um, the ranges should be somewhere between one gram per kilogram. So figure out however much you weigh divided by 2.2 is kilograms. So it's not very much. I mean, think about, you know, if you have a 175 or let's say we have a 150-pound person, that 150-pound person will divide that by 2.2. So 150 divided by 2.2, that equals 68. 
and if we times 68 times 1, we obviously get 1, so that's 68 grams, and they would be 1.7, so times 1.7. So that 150-pound person should be between 68 grams to 150 grams, 115. And if you're eating a lot of protein, then you're going to get uh, above that, and you're no longer going to be in ketosis. So vegans have a tough time getting into into dietary ketosis, but they can still do it. Fats, mainly saturated fats, and that's against the American Heart Association from many years ago that said saturated fats was the evil devil, and it just isn't the case. Um, But quality is paramount, so we're not talking about fatty foods in terms of fried or deep fried or, 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 or really oily foods. We're talking about coconut butter, avocado, medium chain triglycerides, and monounsaturated fats. Um, olive oils, omega-3s. We want to really reduce omega-6s, and you want to have that across the meal with every meal, the better. Uh, Normally, the the levels are needed are those that meet the caloric requirements minus the caloric requirements from proteins and carbohydrates. Here's an example of some foods and what they look like. So we have nice leafy green vegetables, some ghee butter, and some, some protein. Or we have some shaved Parmesan, some salmon, some kale, some Swiss char. I mean, that's what a meal looks like. We pretty much know that that's what it should be. There are some other suggestions of what it looks like as well. So you want to make sure you're getting some some fatty, good fatty um, content with every single meal that you're eating. We talked a little bit about intermittent fasting. Fasting helps increase the production of ketones. Um, It does not have to be um, hypocaloric, so that means that you can have a huge breakfast in the morning. You can have avocados, three pieces of bacon, two eggs. Um, Perhaps you're having some butter and some sour cream, and you may have consumed a lot of calories there. Um, However, by the time lunch comes around, you're not hungry. By the time dinner comes around, you're not hungry. So that was the only meal that day, and then you eat again the next day. You have been in a ketotic state, especially if you're already adaptive, and you're burning the food that you ate from the calories of the breakfast, but you also exceeded that, and you started burning your dietary fat, and you start losing weight. So that's what's great about intermittent fasting. Um, Could be somewhere in the 16 to 24-hour period. You just got to know your body and learn how to do to do it. If you're craving sugars, it means that you have not had enough fats, basically, is what that means. So baselines, each person is different. Uh, no two people are the same way. You have to measure baseline. Uh, you have to measure the effects of environment. You have to measure glucose and ketone bodies. And then, you know, you can really measure heart rate variability too. So I don't want to complicate it for you, but at the same time, if you're going to give this a shot and you want to see if it's working for you, you don't want to mess around and you want to try to do as many baselines as possible. You want to see how the environment is affecting you. So that could be having a coffee. That could be meeting a client. That could be, I mean, all of these things are going to impact your your stress mechanism. And that's really the solution. Solution to this adrenal fatigue issue. And you got to progress gradually. Ketone blood testing, we mentioned this already, aim for 0.6 to 1 millimoles in the morning and between 1 to 3.5 for the rest of the day. Um, naturally lower after anaerobic, but higher after aerobic activity. Um, the breath test, you want to aim for greater than 45 in the breath test with the ketonics or 1 millimole with something else called the Metron. Uh, naturally higher after aerobic activity as well. 
Test in a fasting state, you can test in the middle afternoon, and you can test in the evening. You can test after activity as well. So there's a lot of different ways you can go about testing it. You can test the glucose as well. It should aim anywhere between 65 to 85. It can vary depending on some SNPs, which we can get into in another workshop. You want to do the same thing. You want to test in a fasting state, mid-afternoon, and maybe evening as well and also after activity. All right, so let's get into the six ketogenic supplements that you should be using to help fuel your ketosis process. The first one is medium-chain triglyceride oils. We talked about those earlier. So MCT oils, coconut oils, um, they induce an, an immediate exogenous non-diet-induced ketosis. So that's a bunch of fancy words. We were talking about endogenous, uh, endogenous, meaning your body is adaptive and it's producing its own ketone bodies based on your, your lack of carbohydrate intake and your ability to make ketones and utilize those for fuels. That's endogenous. Exogenous means from the outside, and if you eat MCT oils, then you're immediately producing ketosis, which is great. It's made from coconut or palm kern oils. It is easily available in health food stores, um, and glucose drops immediately. NADH is a great fuel source for the mitochondria. It's responsible for converting a lot of metabolic pathways, and it helps interchange between ketone bodies. Um, if the ratio of NADH and NAD is high in the liver, it releases more ketones. You can measure that. All I'm trying to say is try to look at NADH as a nice supplement to help get you into ketosis. It also supports mitochondrial function, and a lot of times when I'm dealing with a patient who's got a lot of mitochondrial dysfunction, we'll pulse the NADH supplements and see how well they do. And if it crashes them, then we know that their mitochondria is really, really sick. So um, NADH could be more of an advanced strategy, but if we're going in ketosis and helping with the mitochondrial dysfunction, then it's a moot point. You'll do well with the NADH. So it can be used as an exogenous aid for ketosis. Um, oxalic acetate acid, it's part of the citric acid cycle. It supports gene expression and methylation. It helps with mitochondrial density and efficiency. It improves glucose uptake and efficiency. It's great for brain tissue inflammation. It induces caloric restrictions uh, with the benefits of the um, ketogenic diet and it helps, also helps increase that NAD and ADH ratio. L-carnitine, it's the main amino acid for fatty acids uh, metabolism. It helps convert um, acetylcarnitine to shuttle fatty acids into and outside of the mitochondria. It's particularly important if you have some liver SNPs. Um, it helps increase circulating levels of um, uh, lipolysis, so it helps us break down um, fatty acids a lot better. It also removes some of the buildup of fatty acid metabolism from the mitochondria. And if we don't have enough, it's actually associated with cardiovascular disease. And these levels in the muscles are reduced due to ketogenic diets, so that's why it's helpful to use that as a supplement. Phosphatidylcholine is an awesome supporting cell membrane supplement. Um, when I start to do genetic testing with you guys and we see um, what some of your MTHFR SNPs are doing or your um, MTR or MTRR SNPs are or even your MAT or your GAMT or PEMT, I know I'm saying all these acronyms, um, but it's more than just MTHFR. And if you guys want, I'll give you a nice um, seminar on that and we'll talk about exactly um, what you can 
can do to help with your cell function. But phosphatidylcholine is one of the cell fundamental supplements that all pregnant females should have. And in general, people that are trying to become ketotic should use. It's involved in energy production. It has a direct action on the mitochondria. It helps reduce inflammation and reactive oxidative species. And it could be impacted by a, a mutation of the mitochondria. Digestive enzymes, this is a big one. They're useful at the start of the diet because when you're eating much more fat, you're putting more pressure on the liver, more pressure on the gallbladder. A lot of people don't have gallbladders, and it's going to be really disruptive. And I think most of the people that don't do well on this type of diet in the beginning, they haven't been worked up properly, they haven't um, been assessed uh, optimally, and they are not utilizing enough digestive enzymes to help with their with their fat intake. It helps with good digestion. It helps them the gut side effects at the start of the protocol, but once you become adaptive, you'll no longer have those. And a lot of the times, it's like acres of diamonds, you know, where you have that story where someone buys that plot of land and is looking for their, their diamond, their diamond mines in the, in the backyard and they're digging, digging, digging for years and years and years and say, well, screw this. It's, there's no diamonds here. And so they sell the land and the guy who comes and buys it the next day digs not even a foot and underneath there is the, is the, is the diamonds. And that's the same thing with going ketosis um, is the fact that you're probably not getting far enough into it and using the right aids and the right tools in order for you to get there to say that there's no diamonds in there or there is diamonds in there. Hopefully appreciated that analogy. Um, it reduces the strain on the liver and, and to help you produce bile. It helps for supporting gallbladder issues and it also helps ensure that you have enough taurine and glycine for the methylation cycles. Some cautions. We kind of already got into the cautions, but we'll get into a little bit more. Executing is hard. You have to monitor. You have to know if you're there. You have to do some pre-readings. You have to do some post-readings. You can do baseline readings. You can do in the morning, in the afternoon, at night, after exercise. There's so many different ways that you can ch you can test. Um, it's imperative that you basically follow this protocol properly. If you're eating too much carbs, you're you're not going to be in ketosis. If you're eating too much protein you're not going to be in ketosis. So there's no such thing as doing it 1% um, right. It's either right or it's wrong. Um, you may not be healthy enough to do it. Mitochondria might be very sick. Um, those are the people that are really, really uh, uh, suffering, and, and we got to work to get there. And, and I don't just start you on the mitochondrial um, protocol of ketosis. We may have to do some knocking down inflammatory problems first, or we may have to fix the gut first, or we may have to help that liver first. So you just can't start there. Um, compliance is hard. Uh, a lot of the times patients will have a low-fat diet with no vegetables and high fats, and that's not really what it's about. You saw those pictures that I showed you earlier. You're still getting green leafy vegetables, and you're still getting some carbs, and, but you're, and you're still getting some protein, but you're really having fat across the entire meal. And like I said, it can take somewhere between two weeks to to six months. Um, the immune system, when carbohydrates are too low, you can have poor sleep quality, um, melatonin and serotonin production. Um, you can also have poor gastric um, efficiency, um, and you can also have bad metabolic function, um, potentially if your mitochondria are too weak. Um, ketoacidosis um, is when you have above 10 millimoles, 
and that's when we have the general malaise, low energy, dehydration, and thirst. And you just got to make sure that you are getting enough of your electrolytes and some of those supplements that we talked about. Um, you can also have coldness, um, energy dips in the afternoon, GI symptoms at the beginning, that Herxheimer or detoxification, die-offs, because you got to think about a lot of that fatty tissue is is um, holding a lot of the toxins. And when we start to burn those fatty acids as a fuel source, you're releasing a lot of toxins. So that's why it's really important to get that liver working well before before we really get into this. Microbiome, the high dairy fat intake could affect the microbiome adversely. Um, you can also have um, too much lipopolysaccharide absorption, so that's basically um, dysbiosis, so you can increase dysbiosis in the gut. Um, you can also have certain bacterias that convert bile acid um, from a primary to a secondary um, bacteria, uh, which would cause a bacteria overgrowth. So those things need to be assessed, and we do what's called a microbiome gut test, and that's a really good test to determine if this is going to be a good protocol for someone. Metabolism, potential lack of electrolytes, like we mentioned earlier, lipid profile, if you have some SNPs um, from cardiovascular com concerns, then you want to make sure you assess those. Um, and then also low energy with high lactic levels, uh, lactate levels could cause some problems as well. So let's get into the conclusions here. So I have a couple case studies. I had Noreen. She was an exercising 55-year-old female. Um, she was looking for weight loss. Um, she was actually not too heavy. She had about um, 50 let's say about 22 pounds overweight and but she was really really active and she ate very well and her a1c um, just would not go down no matter what she did so we put her on a detox we did a gut repair protocol uh, we checked out to see what food she was reacting to we looked at her genetic report and we we helped the liver um, be able to adapt to a high fat diet and next thing you know she had all the weight come off that she was looking for and it was quite amazing I mean I think her A1C went from like 6.2 to like 5.2 and that was probably over the course of four to six months which which was awesome Janine was an autoimmune patient she still is autoimmune but no matter what we tried to do we couldn't get her thyroid antibodies low I mean we cleaned up her gut we helped identify viruses and we tried to go on a homeopathic protocol but it really wasn't until she started to become keto adaptive that we started to see those antibodies fall, which was 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 a really really amazing. And then of course there's my neurotic self, my ADD self, or my my hypoglycemia, adrenal fatigue self with love handles. Um, I am more focused. I am more productive. I have more energy. I eat more fat. Um, it's it's great. And and I don't have any more love handles. So this is really really great program for you if you're a good candidate for that. Um, what's next? Um, really, I want to give you an invitation to work one-on-one -on -one with me. Um, if what I made uh, said tonight made sense to you, then I really want you to try to think about working with me because it's not just as easy as, as reading a book or, or doing this seminar and saying, okay, I think I'm ready to do it. There's a lot of prerequisites. There's genetic testing that's pretty important. Um, there's just looking at your blood tests from a functional range and looking at your liver enzymes or your anemias or your B12 or your iron or your 
or your liver functions. I mean, those are really, really important. White blood cells, really, really important. Doing some gut microbiome testing and seeing if there's an unhealthy um, opportunistic bacteria growth in your gut or there's not enough of the healthy bacteria growth in your gut or is there a lot of permeability in your gut. Those things are going to pre present challenges for you if you're going to do this. And we can do it. We just got to go through a step-by-step -step sequential way. So I really want you to think about working one-on-one -on -one with me um, if you do work together with me, we're going to do some deep assessment tools. Um, you know, we have to assess these stressors and these systems and everything that's at play that's causing your, your stress response from your overall mental health, physical health, environmental health, chemical health, physiological health. I mean, we do over 20 pages of patient assessments to see what is actually causing um, your recruitment of your stress response. So that helps me try to get a complete picture of, of you and try to figure out where we should start. Um, we also get a new understanding of what's really driving your unwanted adrenal fatigue and exhaustion. It also helps us expose the hidden personal dimensions in adopting a keto-adaptive diet, which means are you ready to do it now or do we got to work up to it? Um, we can also realize effective strategies for maybe not doing a keto-adaptive diet, but doing a keto-adaptive modified diet. So it depends on what's going on with what you're dealing with. We'll also dive deep into dietary ketosis. So we will get in there ultimately and, and get you to help you to lose the weight and get the energy back. And then finally, we'll develop some strategies that are breakthrough in overcoming your adrenal fatigue in a step-by-step -step way um, to help you get your energy back. I typically only accept five new adrenal uh, fatigue Skype patients per month. I have a private practice, so I'm really, really busy in that. I see a lot of chronic conditions, but my real passion is my adrenal fatigue patients and getting you to be keto-adaptive as an effective strategy. So I don't see a whole lot of patients online. Uh, my first appointment is an hour long after you filled out all that paperwork and, and sent me your blood review. And we try to uncover your hidden um, connections from early life, your lifestyle, your job, your physical history, all those things that are triggering your patterns today. We'll go over an in-depth health plan for the next six month, months, covering everything from the foods to eat um, to the specific diet, if we're going to get into ketosis, to certain tests that we'll need to do to clear um, you and give you the green light to go ahead. Um, and then we'll also put to a plan together for regular check-ins check with me so you'll keep accountable and for you to be successful. Thanks for tuning into today's show. If you like what you've heard and you're interested to see if you're a good fit to work with our Adrenal Awakening program, here's what to do next. Head to adrenalfatiguesociety.com forward slash apply and book an appointment to speak to our team. Here's how it works. We'll get on the phone for about 45 minutes and get you crystal clear on three things. Number one, where exactly do you want to be with your health and where are you now? Number two, what are the genetic components that haven't been discovered that are impacting your health? And number three, what are the environmental triggers that may be overlapping with these genetic components keeping you from getting optimal health? Remember, getting your energy back just won't happen by itself. You need expert guidance to make that happen. We've helped clients all over the world transform their lives, quadruple their energy, and fix their metabolism and make the world a better place. To see if you can do the same thing, head to adrenalfatiguesociety.com forward slash apply.
I'm Dr. Richard Joel Rosen, and we'll talk to you soon.